Well, good evening. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. I'm uh, happy that you're here because we had to take about a month off uh, because of other activities in the church. So if for nothing else, I'm just glad you remembered we were starting again on July 1st. So we are uh, going to continue. Actually, we're going to finish the book of Revelation in these next five lessons through this month and really the most exciting parts in, in my mind. In this lesson, by the way, we're going to queue up and we're going to do the seven bowls of wrath. And somebody asked me today, oh, is this going to be a lesson about the Supreme Court? Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Right. But, uh, but we're kind of getting into the crunch time of Revelation. Let me say a prayer for us and we're going to dive into the text. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we come together, the freedom that we have to discuss your word. I pray that you would open our minds to learn and open our hearts to apply the things that you have to say to us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you probably know, and on I think the bottom of your handout, there's the number for questions if you want to text some questions during our study. I thought that I'd do a brief, and I'll try to keep this really brief, but a little bit of a brief uh, review of just kind of where we are and the approach that we are taking. Really do have two goals in this. One is that we will, you will learn about the book of Revelation from more than one point of view. I do not have a point of view that I'm trying to convince you. We're going to talk about orthodox Christian beliefs, not crazy ideas, things that are not based in the text. But everything we're going to talk about is within the realm of Christians trying to understand the book of Revelation. But I want to understand it, but also want you, desperately want you to see that there's huge application to this, that our times mirror very much what the book of Revelation is going to talk about. And that's been true for Christians throughout the centuries. So we're also going to talk about how to apply that. The book of Revelation is organized roughly in this way. The first three chapters, we talked about Jesus dictating letters to the seven churches of Asia. And there were some really good lessons there. Chapters 4 through 19 are what are known to us, has been labeled, it's not as much in the book, but it's labeled the tribulation. And there are basically four major ways people have understood those chapters. And here's how we're going through it. The best way to think about how Christians have approached this in a little different perspective is answering the question, when are the events in chapter 4 through 19 going to happen? So the first view is called a preterist view. That view basically looks at chapter 4 through 19 and all the things that happen in there as basically being a prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem and in the Roman Empire. In other words, it's happened in the past, happened shortly after the time of writing of this prophecy of the book of Revelation. I won't speak very much about it, not because it isn't a view Christians have held, but it's not a view that you will hear as much, and if you limit it, most of it to that time period, I don't find that compelling personally in terms of its long-term application. But we talked about it early on. We won't speak about it quite as much in the next couple of lessons. But the historicist view says, no, chapter 4 through 19 is kind of a roadmap of history from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ in the future. And that that time period is basically called the age of the church or the church age. And chapter 4 through 19 can really be a bit of a roadmap through history 
So some of chapter 4 through 19 has happened, and a little bit of it is yet to happen. That's called a historical or historicist view. Probably the most popular view right now in history, not always in history, but right now, is a futurist view. It answers the question and says chapter 4 through 19, those events are yet to happen, and they will happen in a seven-year period in the future, a time called the seven-year tribulation, and all of these events happen in that time in the future. Some futurists believe it's really close. Others say maybe further out in time, but that it will happen. And then finally, a symbolic or sometimes called an idealist view says chapters 4 through 19 are not talking so much about a specific event that happens at a specific time. It's really symbolic because the book of Revelation is very symbolic, obviously. And they say it is really God telling us about recurring themes throughout history. In other words, the lessons and the symbols in Revelation are talking about things that have happened in the past, are happening now, and will happen in the future. So those are basically the four ways to approach this period of tribulation, this chapter 4 through chapter 19. And as we go through the events that finish up, right now we're right at the end of this period of tribulation. We're almost through it. We'll kind of go through these views and explain what they think those events mean. In our last lesson, we did chapters 13 and 14, and we were introduced to a couple of characters who figure very heavily in the tribulation. There has been the dragon, which is the symbol of Satan, and the book of Revelation is very clear and even names it and says Satan is the god of this world, is the force in rebellion against God, and is the force behind all the rebellion that's going on in the world that there's really a cosmic battle going on here, not just a physical battle. The dragon created a little trinity. And so in chapter 13, you see a beast from the sea. This beast from the sea is commonly known as the Antichrist. Antichrist, depending on which view of Revelation, is a person who has stood for the powers of Satan rebelling against God, or if you're a futurist, it's going to be a political leader in the future. But the Antichrist is on the side of Satan. And then another beast, a false prophet, coming out of the land. And so you have the dragon, Satan, and Antichrist, and a false prophet. And in our last lesson, we talked about the interaction and how the Antichrist will be apparently a political figure who will oppress God's people. The false prophet will be a religious figure who gets people to worship the Antichrist. Now, depending on your view, you'll, you'll point to different uh, sources of that, but that idea of these forces being personified and allied against God's people. So that's what we did in, in our last lesson, and that kind of hopefully brings us up to current. There's an interesting little structure to chapter 4 through 19. What's really happening there is it's the account of the rebellion of Satan against God, but really more than that, of God's judgment against Satan and against the forces that are allied against him in the world. And that judgment takes the form of three sets of seven. Needless to say, if you've been following our symbology, that's just, that's just so obvious. Seven is the number of completeness, so you have seven seals being opened and judgment happening on the earth. You have seven trumpets being blown, 
and judgment happening on the earth. And in this lesson, we'll see seven bowls of wrath being poured out and judgment. We've seen three as the number of emphasis. And so three sets of seven judgments, the idealist or symbolic view sees in that just very clearly, this is God emphasizing the fact that he will indeed judge Satan and the forces of evil. So that's where we are. And as we move into chapter 15, let's just dive into this and we'll get into our third set of sevens. And this is right at the end of the tribulation. After this, we're going to change the scenery a little bit and move into something else. Chapter 15 opens this way. I saw in heaven, this is John, another vision, a great and marvelous sign. Seven angels, and we talked about these seven archangels in a prior lesson, with the seven last plagues. That word's really indicative, and it's going to tie it back to the exodus. He said it's the last plagues because with them, God's wrath is completed. It is finished. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, this is a scene in heaven, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. In other words, the Antichrist has persecuted the church, has persecuted believers, and has killed a number. And he says, I want to show you what happened to them. They're in heaven, and here they are rejoicing. In other words, God has preserved them through that time. But when we get into this, one of the great themes in this, they're called the seven bowls of wrath, one of the great themes is the wrath of God. And I want to talk about that for a minute because it doesn't just show up in the book of Revelation. It's a continuing idea from really all the way back in Leviticus. Those of you Bible scholars, just write down Leviticus 26 and go look at that. And you're going to see some unbelievable parallels between Leviticus 26 and what we're going to talk about in this lesson. But it also appears in the gospel, in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to take you back to this passage for a moment. This is the Apostle Paul. And he is, believe it or not, the book of Romans, I just urge you to read it. Certainly the first six chapters is the best presentation of what is the gospel. And he starts in verse 17 by saying this. He said, I have some good news for you. There is a righteousness from God, in other words, a way to be reconciled to God that is being revealed in the world completely by faith in Jesus Christ. He said, this is great news. Very next verse, he says this, and by the way, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then Romans 1 goes on. It's a very famous passage, very timely passage uh, for us because it goes on to talk about the sins of the world when people reject God and begin to worship other gods, created things. Begins to talk about what happens in society. Read Romans chapter 1 and it's like, whoa. I mean, that is a timeless passage about evil in the world and what it looks like. But you begin to see, Paul begins the gospel. He says, you can't understand the gospel without the wrath of God against godlessness and wickedness. And here in Revelation, you see the wrath of God coming full circle. When it says, these bowls of wrath, these are the last judgment because now God's wrath is finished. In other words, when God said... I am angry at injustice. I am angry at faithlessness. I am angry about the horrible things that people have done in the name of their gods. 
man's inhumanity to man, not just rejecting God, but the evil that people do. We demand justice for this. And God says, my wrath is kindled against this too, and I will do justice. That's what you see happening in Revelation. I don't want you to think of this as disconnected. This is very connected to the good news of the gospel. Jesus came speaking justice. He came speaking judgment. He came speaking by saying, repent, because the kingdom of God is here. And his wrath will be poured out against all the wickedness and godlessness of men. But, he says, here's the good news. I have made a way for you to be reconciled. So this wrath of God, I want you to understand, is being very much a part of the gospel. And so the book of Revelation isn't separate from the rest of the New Testament. It completes the New Testament. If you don't have the book of Revelation, Jesus' teaching makes no sense at all. And so the seven bowls of wrath kind of bring this together at the end. He goes on in chapter 15, and it says, gets more specific, and it says, After this I looked in heaven in the temple. He says that is the tabernacle of the testimony. I want to come back to that. was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen. What is clean clothes? Remember we talked about that? That's a symbol of righteousness, being right with God. They have clean clothes. They wore golden sashes around their chest. And then one of the four living creatures, we were introduced to them way back in chapter 4, around the throne of God, gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. I need to talk to you about uh, this connection with Exodus here because you've already seen it a couple of times. We've talked about the idea of the Song of Moses, which is a song that was sung back in Exodus 15 when the Israelites went through the Red Sea and God judges their oppressors, Egypt, and Moses sings this song of praise. You see that in Revelation. The tabernacle of the testimony. Let me just tell you what that is. That is the tent that the Israelites, when they left Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, they took this large tent and in it was the ark and it's where they worshipped God. It was the temple, if you will, but it happened to be a tent when they were going. That's what he's talking about here. He's reaching back to all this imagery from the Exodus. This Exodus motif is, is huge in Jesus' ministry, and it's really used heavily in Revelation. Think about it. What happened in the Exodus? In the Exodus, you have Egypt, Pharaoh, worshiping various created gods, a la Romans chapter 1, worshiping these gods, oppressing God's people, and says, not only will I oppress you, but I'm, I'm really trying to demonstrate that your God is not great. I am God. My gods are the rulers of the world. And so they begin to oppress the Israelites. God comes in the form of Moses, and he says, we're going to let these people go. Pharaoh says no. So what does God do? He begins to send a series of plagues. That's just the word that's used for these judgments. And all those plagues, all those judgments are kind of in your face to the gods of Egypt. They are a graphic demonstration that the gods of Egypt are not real gods. And finally, you know the story, Pharaoh says, you have destroyed Egypt. You have destroyed the gods. Go. And God brings his people out of slavery to Pharaoh and takes them to the promised land. That Exodus motif of judgment on the gods of the world and bringing his people out is played out now in a very cosmic sense. 
Now we're talking about all believers in a world system that worships other gods and that you see in Revelation, God's people are being persecuted. And he said, I did the exodus to show you this lesson. He said, I will judge the gods of this world. That's what happened with the seven seals, seven trumpets, and we're about to see how he judges the gods of this world with the seven bowls of wrath. And where did God's people end up? As we open this, they end up in heaven, the promised land. So I want you to see the parallel there. God said, the exodus is a little bit of a type. It's a little bit of a story so you can understand how everything ends. So this exodus motif, this judging the gods of the culture, is uh, huge, judging the gods of idolatry. So we're going to jump into the seven bowls. How do the different views say what is going on here? Well, the historicist view says and has said that the Antichrist is the papacy. It's not the pope per se, but it is the Roman Catholic Church. Think of... Uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and the reformers who rebelled against a very corrupt in their time Catholic Church, very oppressive, and said, look, you have corrupted the message of Christ and you have set yourself up to be God. And so the historicist view has seen the papacy as really an anti-Christian force. So they understand the papacy as the antichrist. They're gonna understand these bowls of wrath as things that God did to judge the Catholic Church in history. Specifically, you'll see as we go through, they believe that it's gone on through history. The seven trumpets were a different time period. This time period is between 1789 and 1799. That was the French Revolution. And as we get into it, I'll tell you a little more about it. But historicists say these seven bowls of wrath are describing something that happened in the 18th century to the Catholic Church and it was God's hand judging the Catholic Church, or the, to be more accurate, the papacy, the institution of the papacy. Futurists will say, no, all of these events are gonna happen in the future, and the seven bowls of wrath are things that are really literally going to happen at the very end of this seven-year period. And then, of course, a symbolic view is gonna say that the seven seals, you're gonna notice that the seven seals, when they were open, affected a fourth, affected a fourth of the rivers, a fourth of the, of the earth. Then the seven trumpets came, and they affected a third of the earth, a third of the sea. And with the seven bowls of wrath, you're going to see these judgments affect all of the earth. Symbolic is going to say, this is God telling the same story three times, and it gets progressively worse. And his point is, you can be sure that God will completely judge all evil in the earth. More of a symbolic understanding. Okay, hopefully that kind of tees it up a little bit. Let's jump into the specific bowls, and you'll see how people understand these specific visions. He said, then I heard a loud voice, and it said, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath onto the earth. And the first angel poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. There's a pattern here, by the way. I just want to show you the literary pattern because the book of Revelation is is not just prophecy, 
It's not just true. It's also very beautifully constructed. This, there's a pattern of three, three, and one in these sevens. And so you see the first three bowls poured out and a little interlude. And the pattern is the same as with the trumpets. The earth is affected first, then the sea, then the rivers, then the sun, then there's darkness, then the river Euphrates, and then the whole world. And so if you, were, if you go back and just check this, you'll see the pattern of the trumpets and the pattern of the bowls is the same, but the effect is bigger. Well, what are these things? What's actually happening here? Well, if you're a historicist and you read this and you say, this is again kind of the code through history. What this is symbolic of is what happened when the French Revolution started in 1789. The sores, and the French Revolution, by the way, was a triumph of atheism. It was a turning on the Catholic Church. The French monarchy was always thought of as the first son of the church. In other words, the Catholic monarchy was a supporter of the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. Well, in 1789, when the revolution happened, these were atheists. It was very much a, a decay of the moral structure and a throwing away of the religious structure. And France, by being turned over by this revolution, became very much against the Catholic Church. So the sores are the atheism and the moral corruption. The seas turning to blood are a series of naval disasters that befell the French by the British. Now we're gonna track this with historical events. And so you see turmoil in France, and that's how they understand this. And so the pouring out of the, uh, onto the rivers and the sea is Napoleon as he leaves France and begins to invade Germany and Austria and Northern Italy and eventually gets to Rome. And so they're gonna see in this the French Revolution as God's way of punishing the papacy, of judging the Antichrist. Now futurists will look at this and say, this is yet to happen. And if you remember, the futurists are very high on the idea that there's some cataclysmic thing happening, that the Antichrist is gonna come up and conquer the world, and there's likely gonna be a nuclear war. There's going to be war and famine. Remember those four horsemen? war and famine and pestilence and death. And so imagine in the futurist mind, back here, what's happening now in this seven-year period is the world is at war. People are suffering. People are dying. The Antichrist is powerful. But then all of a sudden, something happens. Some futurists say, because of the nuclear war, that's what these sores are, is it's sort of boomerangs. In other words, the Antichrist wants to conquer the world, but by unleashing these forces, he's kind of created hell on earth, if you will. And so the sores are from nuclear radiation. Uh, other futurists take it a little more symbolically and they say, no, this is God literally causing unbelievably painful things to happen to the people who support the Antichrist. The seas turning to blood. Most futurists don't think that, well, it literally turned to blood, but think about the microorganisms that take over the sea in, in pl certain places in the Caribbean called the red tide. They, they think some occurrence like that happens to literally poison the seas. In other words, the Antichrist is trying to become king of the world and the world's falling apart. And this is God's work in judging it. And then finally, pouring out on the rivers, futurists see this as something that literally uh, happens at that time. They, ref they reflect the widespread death and violence. Just think about the, war, the whole world broken out into war and just conflicts everywhere and nuclear weapons flying around. This is kind of the futurist view of what's happening. Futurists just understand that this is God 
pouring out his judgment on people. Antichrist thinks he's building a kingdom. God says, you're creating hell on earth, literally. So that's kind of what the futurists are seeing. Symbolic point of view, as you would expect, they see these sores. They see the blood. Think about the Exodus. People are affected with sores back in the Exodus in Pharaoh's time. The Nile River turns into blood. They're saying, this is a symbol. In other words, this is economic calamity happening. And God is judging the kingdoms of the earth. What is probably the number one God of the earth at this point? Economics. Money. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. Well, much of our world serves money, doesn't it? And symbolic view will understand this as these are economic catastrophes that are happening in the world. And this is God saying, just like he did in the Exodus, you think your money will save you? You think your money is a God? Let me show you this. I'll crash all your markets. Does that make sense? This is, we'll see it very symbolically as judging the gods of our culture like he judged the gods of Egypt. So in all of these things, you notice it's very symbolic. Are the sores literal? Or are they the French Revolution? Or are they the crashing of economic markets making uh, miserable things? All those are very valid ways to look at it. They're just different ways to answer the question of what's happening. Let me finish up with the next few bowls, and then we'll look at uh, a couple of interesting aspects. So the fourth angel, okay, and we'll get the next three, pours out his bowl on the sun. The sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat. You begin to feel this, the intensity of what's happening in the world here, the intensity of God's judgment. And they cursed the name of God who had control, this is interesting, who had control over what was happening. But they refused to repent and glorify God. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Interesting. And the kingdom was plunged into darkness. Listen to this. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So you see this progressive series. Well, historicists would say this continues to speak about the things that happened in the uh, French Revolution, specifically the dark times for the papacy. The French troops, so it started in 1789, sacked Rome in 1798. They literally stripped the rings off the Pope's fingers, emptied the treasury, sent him packing into exile. And so the historicists would say, this is talking about that time in history. This is the Antichrist, for them, the papacy, being brought low and destroyed by its own creation. So that's how they're going to understand this, is the end of, or not the end, but really God's judgment in history on the papacy. Futurists are going to see this as very, uh, usually very literal. Uh, some see it symbolically, but some are going to say, whether it's from a nuclear war or a solar flare, but the whole universe is sort of falling apart at the end of the tribulation. It's like, it's obvious that the universe is literally coming apart. And so you see these solar flares and people are just burned by the radiation. That there's darkness, there's huge eclipse, and that the kingdom of the Antichrist, even the Antichrist realizes, I can't, can't run the kingdom. 
Economic markets have crashed. People are dying. We're in the middle of a war, and Satan's here like my kingdom is literally crumbling around me. And God said, because you're not really God. And so they'll see these as specific things that happen in the end of that specific time period, that seven-year period. And then finally, the uh, symbolic period sees this again as just a continuing of the uh, Exodus plagues. In fact, there's one really curious thing here. You notice in the dark here, it says, uh, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. In Exodus, one of the plagues is darkness on Pharaoh. And in Exodus 10:21, this is really interesting. You probably didn't read it quite this carefully, but it's a curious thing. It said, that God brought darkness on the land of Egypt, a darkness that could be felt. That's really interesting because what he's talking about there is not just darkness, but more than just physical darkness, but just a darkness of the soul. And that's what you see here is symbolically is this is a dark world. Satan is a dark Lord and the kingdom of the world is a dark place not only dark physically because of the strife and the violence and the injustice, but dark spiritually. Does that make sense? That's what symbolic people see happening here. So whether you think it's specifically happening in the seven years or it's symbolic of the world culture, and this is inevitable, this is where our world's gods will take us, or if you're a historicist and you see it in the past, you still get this idea of Satan having a very failed kingdom. One other thing I'd point out here before we leave, and this is just a testimony to God. I'm going to turn this around. Notice that twice here it talks about people curse the name of God because of their pain, but they refuse to repent. And then the second, they gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed God because of what's happening, but they refuse to repent. Let me give you the obvious implication. It is possible for them to repent, and I think that's amazing that up to the very last minute, and this is the last minute, by the way, we are right at the end of the tribulation, is the opportunity exists for anyone to repent, change your mind, renounce the gods of this culture and turn and follow God. That repentance is possible. But God's prediction is this, is that people love their gods so much. They, the Gospel of John says it this way, men love the darkness more than they love the light. And God says, this is how it plays out. Plays out today, plays out in the tribulation. But I think it's really interesting that that point comes out and the potential for repentance is possible. One final note about, the, about these bowls. I'm going to read you something really curious. I'm going to read this. I didn't put it up there. But when it finishes this, and it says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl to make way for the kings from the east. Historicists think that that's the Ottoman Empire coming in in the late 1700s. Ottoman Empire, basically a Muslim empire headquartered in Turkey. Very powerful all the way up to World War I. They say, ah, the kings of the East, those are the Muslims that are going to come in and try to destroy the Catholic Church, actually all Christians. Futurists are going to say, no, they're going to be a bunch of kings from the East, like Russia and China and Iran and Iraq, and they're going to come attack Israel at the end of that seven-year period. The Antichrist is going to marshal all these kings, countries, and they're all going to say, hey, you know who's really causing this problem? God. Why don't we go wipe out his people? And so they're going to come for the Battle of Armageddon, which is going to happen in Israel. And Armageddon is mentioned here. We'll talk more about that in a future lesson. But futures see that as literally happening. 
But this passage goes on and says something really interesting. It says, continuing, dried up to pair the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, the mouth of the beast, Antichrist, and the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Okay, this is very symbolic, like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs, and they go abroad to all the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We'll talk more about Armageddon because this is the end of the tribulation and we're just about ready for the great battle. But it's interesting with this demonic influence. What the scriptures are saying here, whether you're a historicist, futurist, symbolic, is this, is that this isn't just people operating independently, that you serve God or you serve Satan, and that Satan's power is indeed working through the evil in the world. Matter of fact, it kind of calls to mind this passage back in Ephesians 6. This is uh, in the early New Testament saying this, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's what Revelation is talking about, the devil's schemes. He's working through Antichrist, through the false prophet, orchestrating the world to serve him. Unfortunately, God is judging him and the world is falling apart, but he's going to lash out. It says, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I just think it's interesting that Revelation picks this theme up as well. It says, don't kid yourself when evil happens in the world that it's just people being evil to other people. There are darker things behind this. There's a cosmic battle going on, and you have to pick a side. And so in Revelation, you see that theme of Satan's activity picked up. And then finally, let me do the seventh bowl, and then we'll see if we have any questions about this or want to talk about it. But the seventh angel then pours his bowl into the air. That's interesting. I'll come back to that. And out of the temple came a loud voice saying, it's finished. It's done. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. These are symbolic of judgment. All through Revelation, this means God's judgment is happening. And a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was this earthquake. Stop and think about earthquakes in general. And I know you think a lot about earthquakes right now because we have a lot of them here. If you think you are in control of things, what is probably the biggest thing that will convince you that you are not in control of things? Is that is the very earth under your feet is begins to shake, right? And so here's Satan who says, I'm the ruler of this world, and God said, really? Stop this earthquake. Yeah, big boy, what can you, what can you do with that, right? And so what is this bowl? It says, here's the ultimate judgment. You think your gods are in control? He said, let me show you how little control you really have. It says, there was never an earthquake like this. The great city, Jerusalem, split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. I mean, this is cataclysmic. God remembered Babylon the great, and listen to this, and he gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Again, you see God's wrath, his judgment against this evil coming through. By the way, there's an interesting parallel in Revelation. You see bowls two other times in the book, in chapter 5 and in chapter 8. And in those times, those bowls are in heaven, and they are filled with the prayers of the saints. 
Now, I'm not talking Catholic saints. I'm talking you and me. The prayers of those who follow God. And most of the time their prayers are, how long, O Lord, until you will judge the evil in the world? How long until you will avenge what is happening, the persecution that is happening to us? And God says, it's coming. And now you see those bowls filled not with prayers, but with the answer to those prayers. God's justice being poured out. And so here, every island that says fled away, the mountains couldn't be found. Huge hailstones come down. Think hailstones, one of the Exodus plagues, come down because the plague was so terrible, people cursed God. That's the last act of defiance in the book of Revelation, is people curse God with the seventh bowl being poured out. And the next thing that's going to happen is going to be the battle of Armageddon and the judgment, the ultimate judgment of the earth. This is an interesting passage to me, too, because he pours out onto the air. Now, historicists say we've now caught up with modern times, that this is something that God's going to do to crush the papacy, the false religion in the world, because they understand the papacy is being symbolic of the false religion. Futurists say this is literally going to happen the very last day of the seven years. Right? This is what happens at the end of the tribulation. Symbolic view is going to say, Interesting that this is poured into the air. Let me show you a passage out of Ephesians. Again, picking up this whole idea of Satan is behind this. It says, as for you, you were dead in your sins in which you used to live when you used to follow, before you knew Christ and he reconciled us, you used to follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air in whose spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. It's talking about Satan. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and this bowl is poured out on what? Poured out on the air. This is like totally in your face to Satan. It says, you think you're in control? This bowl of wrath gets poured right on your head. Now, you can have the earth. It's falling apart before your very eyes. Does that make sense? It's just, whether you see this symbolically or you're futurist and you see it happening, either way, this is God saying, Satan, you think you're in control and you are not. You think you can get away with this evil, and you cannot. And all of my people throughout all of time who've been killed, who've been oppressed, who've been persecuted, I will do justice in this world. That's what the seven bowls of wrath are effectively about, is, is this idea of God's ultimate judgment on the earth. Let me see if you have any questions. I know I kind of went through that quickly, but I think you guys are seasoned revelation people now. You, you know all these symbols. Question. Why does this uh, seem so, so similar to the past weeks of CNN? <laughs> yeah, good question. Why does this seem so much like what's on the news? You know, if you're a future, I'll I mean, I'll, I know that that's a clever question, but I know you probably also mean that a little seriously. And if you're a futurist, you're kind of looking at the news. Futurist, by the way, bless your hearts. You guys really like to watch the news because you're kind of waiting to see when is the tribulation going to happen. And if you believe that the rapture is a separate event from the second coming, in other words, if you believe in a rapture before the tribulation, you're like, hey, I'm getting my affairs in order because we're getting close. And that really is true. I'm being kind of funny, but the point is, is it does look like the earth, the world, is tracking toward a scenario where one might enter that end time. If you're symbolic in view and you say, I don't necessarily see this as only happening in a seven-year period in the future, you'd say, this probably happened 500 years ago, and sure enough, look at the world. Evil is at work, just like he said, and it, it really does look like the book of Revelation. 
And so God is also at work. One of the great benefits of seeing Revelation as applicable right now is the idea that even though the world looks so powerful and things look so bad, Revelation said, yep, and you know what? God's letting that happen, and God is working in it, and he is in charge of it, and Satan is not really in control, and God really will judge evil in the world. And Christians throughout all kinds of times, modern Christians, ancient Christians, have looked to the book of Revelation in that way. Laura? Sorry, my app went blank about the time you asked for questions. So. That's Satan in the world, what can I tell you? <laughs> Well, since we started with that, I'll just kind of continue that. Um, have another question that gives a number of examples of things that have happened in the United States over the last 200 years that people thought were signals of the end times. Right. Um, so there are also lots of worldwide historical events that people interpret to mean the end times are near. And certainly currently we have two recent opinions from the Supreme Court and in order to remove the Ten Commandments from our state capitol that people are thinking mean it's the end times. So <clears throat> if you're not an alarmist, you might still be concerned, but not convinced. So what is your, um, what are your thoughts? Well, let me kind of keep it in the context of this. Uh, I'll give you some other thoughts this Sunday in the sermon, but, uh, but let me keep this in this context of Revelation. If you look at it, and, and I respect these views, that's why I'm giving you multiple views, because I really want you to think about it. I, I don't, I'm not trying to convince you to look at this a particular way, because these are all legitimate views. If you are a futurist, you do see these things as signs that God has predicted that history will come to a conclusion, and not a good one. In other words, if you're a futurist, you don't really expect that things are going to get a lot better. I mean, in the big scheme of things. You really do see Satan, and this is true. I mean, whether you're futurist or not, a lot of what I'm saying is true. You really do see Ephesians playing itself out. This is Satan rebelling against God in the world. This is people deciding to serve Satan. They don't call it that. They're going to worship money or self, or I'm going to be my own God. But in some sense, they're in rebellion against God. And you do not expect that to get better. You expect it to play out into a seven-year period where it really comes to a head. And so one might see these events as being, yep, this is pretty much what God forecast, is the forces of evil very much pushing against God and God's people. Hopefully you take heart to realize that they will not win and God is in control. If your symbolic point of view, you say, this is God telling me that, yes, we are really in the tribulation now. Satan is doing everything he can right now and God is still working in this. So whether you see these as signs that that seven-year period is coming, or you say, Revelation is happening right now. It's not a specific seven-year period. It's, it's going on right now. It may go on for 50 more years, or whatever God decides to allow, but it's gonna happen. So almost all Christians look at the world and see the things that are happening as beyond just mere random events. That's the big difference between you as a Christian and your secular neighbor. Your secular neighbor says, we are causing everything that's happening and we can fix everything that's happening. Christians say, there really is evil in the world and you really aren't in control as much as you think. And that history is actually going somewhere and things don't get better until God is in control. So everybody's going to understand this as signs of the end times. The difference is slight. Might be, is it signs that Revelation 4 through 19 is about to kick in, or is it a sign that we're in it? 
and take heart from what it has to say. But either way you look at it, there's a lot of commonality. Um, kind of along the same lines, there have been a couple of um, astrological events recently, mm -hmm. the planet conjunction and the blood moons. So do you think that those align with Revelation in the end times? Yeah, I'm probably, I'm going to give you an opinion now, because a lot of people have opinions, and, and everything anybody tells you is an opinion. Some people are going to tell you, like, here's the facts. This is an opinion. Everybody's is an opinion on this. I don't see that playing quite so much into Revelation, because I think those are sometimes things that are happening that people weave together into a prophecy that I don't find in this text. Having said that, I do think that it's true from this perspective. All of those theories and ideas about pulling all these things together, usually from the Old Testament, at least presuppose this. God is working through history. I do agree with that. I just don't know that I can say, yeah, he specifically did that, and he specifically did this, and he specifically added one and one and got three right there. Some of these things I think are man-made ideas, but I will agree with this. We all agree, God is working through history. This is not random. So I would agree with it to that extent. Um, John wrote these messages to each church under the watchful eye of the Roman emperor. So how did the church get the message? Yeah, this, is, this book of Revelation we've talked about, it's what's called apocalyptic literature, and it's not the only apocalyptic literature. The book of Daniel has some apocalyptic elements. Zechariah has some apocalyptic elements. There are apocalyptic writings that are not in the Bible. They are not inspired, but they use these symbols. And so the people of the time looked at this, and frankly, I hope that as we've gone through it, you've realized, you know, this isn't rocket science. This is not trying to be really precise, but some of these symbols are just kind of obvious. You know, I mean, in other words, I can get the gist of this message. So could the early Christians. They understood the idea of what a beast might be. They weren't looking for a beast. They said, ah, that is one of the great powers allied against God. In other words, they understood these symbols because there were other, these symbols were used in literature at the time. You and I can understand these symbols because we have the ability simply to study that. Those documents are still around. You might wonder, why would God preserve apocalyptic literature that's not inspired and not in the Bible? It makes it pretty easy for us to say, oh, they commonly understood the sea as a symbol for a political entity. They commonly understood the land as a symbol of a religious entity. In other words, God's given us what we need to decode it. But that's an astute question. Under the nose of the Roman emperor, almost everything that, the, that is being said in the book of Revelation was punishable by death in the Roman Empire. And that is that you think there's a God other than the Roman Emperor, and John's like, yeah, to say the least. He said, actually, I got a lot more offensive things than that to say, but it's done in an apocalyptic way, and consequently, the Roman Empire doesn't stamp this out. So I think there was some practicality to using this mode of communication. I think God's really, really smart. So do you think there's evidence that would support one of these four views to be correct or more correct than the others? Well, I think a, a diehard proponent of each of these views will just give you an impassioned and convincing argument that their view is right. And I uh, will say this to you. I am comfortable, by and large, with these views because of this. They are sincerely trying to read the Scripture and let the Scripture speak. 
I do not think they are all correct, but I do think they all get some really basic things, and I keep trying to point out things that all of these views hold and agree, and that is the sovereignty of God, the reality of evil, the reality of God's judgment. All of these views are going to get the main things right. Now, whether they get the Antichrist right or not, whether they get the timing right or not, frankly, isn't as big a deal to me. So, no, I don't think they're all right, but I respect the fact that we agree with the core ideas here. In other words, we, we agree on the really important things. But I doubt that all four of those are correct. But I know that many of you are doing what I've done many times, and that is, hmm, wonder how I can mix this up and kind of make them all right. And you can be a little eclectic. That, by the way, that's the scholarly word for your view. Just say, what's your view on Revelation? It's fairly eclectic, really. Which view do you hold to? Oh, I have an eclectic amalgamation of these various views. It sounds great. And the bottom line is, is that, you know what? Probably pieces of truth in all of this. And my, only, my one thing I will say, and I don't mean this to be glib or to duck the question is, probably when this happens and we understand it, we get to heaven and God says, do you see that? And we're going to go, whoa, never saw that coming. That is even cooler than we thought. That's the one thing I'm sure of. It'll be cooler than we think. But I do think God intends for us to understand some key ideas. And hopefully you say, you know, whichever view you have, there's some very comforting ideas here that explain to us what's happening. So did I duck that pretty well without taking sides? So how does one distinguish exactly when the seven years will begin? Well, if you're a pre-trib rapture person, a bunch of you are going to disappear. All right, so that's when it begins. In other words, if you think... Okay, I'm being glib, but really, I mean, that's kind of the typical dispensational, pre-tribulation, futurist view. In other words, a futurist view, which says these are going to happen in seven years, called the tribulation, and it's going to be in the future, maybe starts tomorrow, maybe starts in ten years, but it's coming in the future, that there will be a rapture, that the church will be removed at some point, in this tribulation, which not everybody agrees with that at all. I mean, that's not necessarily a biblical view, but futures say there's going to be this rapture before the second coming, and some call pre-tribulation rapture, meaning before the tribulation is the church gets raptured. This is left-behind series kind of stuff. We're a very popularized kind of view, is you're going to be raptured, and then the seven years starts. That'll be your sign. And so futurists are looking to say, hey, certain things are going to happen first. And, and so we, we, we're probably getting really close. You could even find on the Internet a rapture index, which, uh, and these are futurists who have maybe more time on their hands than they ought. But they're basically futurists who are analyzing world events and saying, hey, look what's happening, and how does it track with prophecy? And I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm just trying to say futurists are, are looking at that. And they're basically saying, we might be getting really, really close. I will tell you this, I'm going to throw in an opinion. My only heartburn with that, it's not my view, but my only heartburn with that is don't let your eschatology, in other words, your end times philosophy, become the center of your faith. In other words, it's, I'm very comfortable with, with people viewing it that way. And they may be right. I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I know this. Don't get so wrapped around when the tribulation is going to start that you forget to do what God told us to do right now. Does that make sense? Don't live in fear. Don't live in counting down the hours. Go live the full life of saying, God, you've got work for me to do in a broken, hurting world, and I'm going to go do it. That's probably the only thing I would urge you is 
don't let a preoccupation with end times steal the present because we have work to do. Good question. In years past, people were fearful to study Revelation, um, thinking they weren't supposed to delve into its meaning, that it was not intended for us to understand. So what has changed? It's very popular now. Yeah, the book of Revelation, we, we don't even study it all that much. I, I teach it here, and I teach it about every three years because I actually think it's quite relevant. Early church read the book of Revelation a lot. I mean, if you were in the first 300 years of uh, this age, you were being persecuted first by the Jews and then brutally by the Romans. They read the book of Revelation a lot because it was quite reassuring that what is happening to us, and it says God already knew what was going to happen. God is in control of what's going to happen. God told me I may need to suffer, but we will prevail. In other words, that was powerful to them. The more affluent we've gotten, the less we felt the need for that. I predict that in the near future, Revelation will be read a little bit more, unfortunately. But I do think that it is people, the view has come to be either we're getting really close to the tribulation, or if your symbolic view is, hey, why are we ignoring this book? It's probably telling us a lot about the world situation right now. So I think that's part of why it's become more uh, prevalent to study the whole New Testament and not leave the book of Revelation out. Good question. Um, there are evangelical churches and um, others with extreme support of Israel. They take mission trips and they go to Megiddo and um, cheer on the fight at Armageddon, hoping to hasten the arrival of the end times. Uh, what do you think about the futility of that? And on the flip side of that, if God's going to win and it's going to happen anyway, then why are we trying to delay it? Yeah, good question. Well, we were just at Megiddo, and uh, no battle at this point. I'll just tell you. We were standing in Megiddo, and by the way, when we get to Armageddon, we'll talk about that, and I'll show you some pictures, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the different views of what's going to happen there. But that's a good point. First of all, I would agree with that. Is, and this is a huge difference, by the way, from Muslim eschatology. I know you didn't ask about this, but in Muslim eschatology, all the Muslims are going to pick up the AK-47s and go to battle for Allah. In this eschatology, you're not fighting any battles. You don't need to get pick up a gun. You don't need to pick up a sword. You don't need to kill anybody. You don't even need to hate anybody. Your God is going to judge the world. And so that's true. The Battle of Armageddon is won by God, not by us going out and fighting. We're actually told to fight a different way, and that is with the truth and the love of the gospel. But the idea of why are we trying to delay the end, Christians aren't. Really, a healthy Christian attitude would be things are going to happen as they're going to happen. God is really in charge of what's going to go on. My job is to go out and love these people and take this good news of Jesus Christ, take the warning of repent uh, to them, and God will, will deal with that. We really don't have to be as involved in trying to control the world events. Satan thinks he can control world events. Christians realize we're very comfortable because our God who loves us and who will take care of us is in control of world events. Christians who support Israel, let me address that. I haven't talked a lot about dispensationalism, but it's a particular view that, and one of its distinctives, I'm not going to do it justice, but I think this is fair to say, that in the context of Revelation, a dispensational view, and this is a very futurist view, says God still has things to do with the nation of Israel. And consequently, they will read a lot of this as, this is about Israel in the end times. So we Christians should support 
the nation of Israel because there's going to be a geopolitical events that happen here. There's going to be a real political leader called the Antichrist. He's going to have a real war against the real country of Israel and that we as Christians need to be supporting the country of Israel. And so that's where that twist comes. It is a particular group of futurists who see Israel as very important in that seven years of what's going to happen in the future. But even dispensationalists don't disagree with the idea that God is in control and God's going to win that battle. Not Christians and not even Israel and their army. It's going to be God that wins that battle. Well, let me finish up then with this. Now that we finish the seven bowls, the next thing that happens is Armageddon. But in between, there are two interesting chapters here, and there's a vision that God gives about the, uh, two really powerful symbols, uh, Rome and Babylon. And so basically the next lesson is a little interlude before the great battle. So next, we are going to talk about the ultimate separation of church and state. And so this next lesson is going to be eerily, eerily applicable to world events. So, come next time for the destruction of Babylon the Great. See you guys next time.